Section 23 of the Exemplary Novels of Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Douglas Mark. The Exemplary Novels by Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. Translated by Walter K. Kelly. The Jealous Estremaduran, Part 1 Not many years ago there issued from a town in Estremadura a Hidalgo nobly born, who, like another prodigal son, went about various parts of Spain, Italy, and Flanders, squandering his years and his wealth. At last, after long peregrinations, his parents being dead and his fortune spent, he made his appearance in the great city of Seville where he found abundant opportunity to get rid of the little he had left. Finding himself then so bare of money, and not better provided with friends, he adopted the remedy to which many a spendthrift in that city has recourse, that is, to betake themselves to the Indies, the refuge of the despairing sons of Spain, the church of the homeless, the asylum of homicides, the haven of gamblers and cheats, the general receptacle for loose women, the common center of attraction for many, but effectual resource of very few. A fleet being about to sail for Tierra Firma, he agreed with the admiral for a passage, got ready his sea stores and his shroud of Spanish grass cloth, and embarking at Cadiz, gave his benediction to Spain, intending never to see it again. The fleet slipped from its moorings, and amidst the general glee of its living freight, the sails were spread to the soft and prosperous gale, which soon wafted them out of sight of land into the wide domains of the great father of waters, the ocean. Our passenger now became very thoughtful, revolving in his memory the many and various dangers he had passed in the years of his peregrinations, and the thriftless conduct he had pursued all his life long. The result of the account to which he thus called himself was a firm resolution to change his way of life, to keep a much better hold of whatever wealth God might yet be pleased to bestow upon him, and to behave with more reserve towards women than he had hitherto done. The fleet was nearly becalmed, whilst the mind of Felipe de Carrizales was actuated by these reflections. The wind soon after rose and became so boisterous that Carrizales had enough to do to keep on his legs and was obliged to leave off his meditations and concern himself only with the affairs of his voyage. It was so prosperous that they arrived without check or accident at the port of Cartagena. To shorten the introduction of my narrative, and avoid all irrelevant matter, I content myself with saying that Felipe was about eight and forty years of age when he went to the Indies, and that in the twenty years he remained there he succeeded, by dint of industry and thrift, in amassing more than a hundred and fifty thousand crowns. Seeing himself once more rich and prosperous, he was moved by the natural desire, which all men experience, to return to his native country, rejecting therefore great opportunities for profit which presented themselves to him. He quitted Peru, where he had amassed his wealth, turned all his money into ingots, and putting it on board a registered ship to avoid accidents, returned to Spain, landed at San Lucar, and arrived at Seville, loaded alike with years and riches. Having placed his property in safety, 
he went in search of his friends, and found they were all dead. He then thought of retiring to his native place, and ending his days there, although he had ascertained that death had not left him one survivor of his kindred, and if, when he went to the Indies poor and needy, he had no rest from the thoughts that distracted him in the midst of the wide ocean. He was now no less assailed by care, but from a different cause. Formerly, his poverty would not let him sleep, and now his wealth disturbed his rest. For riches are as heavy a burden to one who is not used to them, or knows not how to employ them, as indigence to one who is continually under its pressure. Money, and the one of it alike bring care, but in the one case the acquisition of a moderate quantity affords a remedy, the other case grows worse by further acquisition. Carrizales contemplated his ingots with anxiety, not as a miser, for during the few years he had been a soldier, he had learned to be liberal, but from not knowing what to do with them, for to hoard them was unprofitable, and keeping them in his house was offering a temptation to thieves. On the other hand, all inclination for resuming the anxious life of traffic had died out in him, and at his time of life his actual wealth was more than enough for the rest of his days. He would fain have spent them in his native place, put out his money there to interest, and passed his old age in peace and quiet, giving what he could to God, since he had given more than he ought to the world. He considered, however, that the penury of his native place was great, the inhabitants very needy, and that to go and live there would be to offer himself as a mark for all the importunities with which the poor usually harass a rich neighbor, especially when there is only one in the place to whom they can have recourse in their distress. He wanted someone to whom he might leave his property after his death, and with that view, taking measure of the vigor of his constitution, he concluded that he was not yet too old to bear the burthen of matrimony, but immediately on conceiving this notion, he was seized with such a terrible fear as scattered it like a mist before the wind. He was naturally the most jealous man in the world, even without being married, and the mere thought of taking a wife called up such horrible specters before his imagination that he resolved by all means to remain a bachelor. That point was settled, but it was not yet settled what he should do with the rest of his life when it chanced that, passing one day through a street, he looked up and saw at a window a young girl, apparently about thirteen or fourteen, with a face so very handsome and so very pleasing in its expression that poor old Carrizales was vanquished at once and surrendered without an effort to the charms of the beautiful Leonora, for that was the girl's name. Without more ado, he began to string together a long train of arguments to the following effect. This girl is very handsome, and to judge from the appearance of the house, her parents cannot be rich. She is almost a child, too. Assuredly, a wife of her age could not give a husband any uneasiness. Let me see. Say that I marry her. I will keep her close at home. I will train her up to my own hand and so fashion her to my wishes that she will never have a thought beyond them. I am not so old, but that I may yet hope to have children to inherit my wealth. Whether she brings me any dower or not is a matter of no consideration, since heaven has given me enough for both. 
and rich people should not look for money with a wife, but for enjoyment, for that prolongs life, whereas jarring discontent between married people makes it wear out faster than it would do otherwise. So be it then, the die is cast, and this is the wife whom heaven destines me to have. Having thus soliloquized, not once but a hundred times on that day, and the two or three following, Carrizales had an interview with Leonora's parents, and found that although poor, they were persons of good birth. He made known his intention to them, acquainted them with his condition and fortune, and begged them very earnestly to bestow their daughter upon him in marriage. They required time to consider his proposal, and to give him also an opportunity to satisfy himself that their birth and quality was such as they had stated. The parties took leave of each other, made the necessary inquiries, found them satisfactory on both sides, and finally Leonora was betrothed to Carrizales, who settled upon her twenty thousand ducats. So hotly enamored was the jealous old bridegroom. But no sooner had he pronounced the conjugal yes than he was all at once assailed by a host of rabid fancies. He began to tremble without cause, and to find his cares and anxieties come thicker and faster upon him than ever. The first proof he gave of his jealous temper was, in resolving that no tailor should take measure of his betrothed for any of the many wedding garments he intended to present her. Accordingly, he went about looking for some other woman who might be nearly of the same height and figure as Leonora. He found a poor woman who seemed suitable for his purpose, and having had a gown made to her measure, he tried it on his betrothed, found that it fitted well, and gave orders that it should serve as a pattern for all the other dresses, which were so many and so rich that the bride's parents thought themselves fortunate beyond measure in having obtained for themselves and their daughter a son-in-law and husband so nobly munificent. As for Leonora, she was at her wit's end with amazement at the sight of such gorgeous finery, for the best she had ever worn in her life had been a serge petticoat and a silk jacket. The second proof of jealousy given by Felipe was that he would not consummate his marriage until he had provided a house after his own fancy which he arranged in this singular manner. He bought one for twelve thousand ducats in one of the best wards of the city, with a fountain and pond, and a garden well stocked with orange trees. He put screens before all the windows that looked towards the street, leaving them no other prospect than the sky, and did much the same with all the others in the house. In the gateway next to the street, he erected a stable for a mule, and over it a straw loft, and a room for an old black eunuch, who was to take care of the mule. He raised the parapets round the flat roof of the house so high that nothing could be seen above them but the sky, and that only by turning one's face upwards. In the inner door, opening from the gateway upon the quadrangle, he fixed a turning box like that of a convent, by means of which articles were to be received from without. He furnished the house in a sumptuous style, such as would have become the mansion of a great lord and he bought four white slave girls, whom he branded in the face, and two negresses. For the daily supplies of his establishment, he engaged a purveyor, who was to make all the necessary purchases, but was not to sleep in the house, or ever enter it further than to the second door, where he was to deposit what he had brought in the turning box. 
Having made these arrangements, Carrizales invested part of his money in sundry good securities. Part he placed in the bank, and the rest he kept by him to meet any emergencies that might arise. He also had a master key made for his whole house, and he laid up a whole year's store of all such things as it is usual to purchase in bulk at their respective seasons. And everything being now ready to his mind, he went to his father-in-law's house and claimed his bride, whom her parents delivered up to him with no few tears, for it seemed to them as if they were giving her up for burial. Leonora knew not, poor young creature, what was before her, but she shed tears because she saw her parents weep, and taking leave of them with their blessing, she went to her new home, her husband leading her by the hand, and her slaves and servants attending her. On their arrival, Carrizales harangued all his domestics, enjoining them to keep careful watch over Leonora, and by no means, on any pretense whatsoever, to allow anybody to enter within the second gate, not even the black eunuch, but the person whom above all others he charged with the safekeeping and due entertainment of his wife, was a duenna of much prudence and gravity, whom he had taken to be Leonora's monitress and superintendent of the whole house, and to command the slaves and two other maidens of Leonora's age, whom he had also added to his family, that his wife might not be without companions of her own years. He promised them all that he would treat them so well, and take such care for their comfort and gratification, that they should not feel their confinement, and that on holidays they should every one of them without exception be allowed to go to Mass. But so early in the morning that daylight itself should scarcely have a chance of seeing them. The servant-maids and the slaves promised to obey all his orders cheerfully and with prompt alacrity, and the bride, with a timid shrinking of her shoulders, bowed her head and said that she had no other will than that of her lord and spouse, to whom she always owed obedience. Having thus laid down the law for the government of his household, the worthy Estremaduran began to enjoy, as well as he could, the fruits of matrimony, which, to Leonora's inexperienced taste, were neither sweet-flavored nor insipid. Her days were spent with her duenna, her damsels, and her slaves, who, to make the time pass more agreeably, took to pampering their palates, and few days passed in which they did not make lots of things in which they consumed a great deal of honey and sugar. Their master gladly supplied them with all they could wish for in that way without stint, for by that means he expected to keep them occupied and amused, so that they should have no time to think of their confinement and seclusion. Leonora lived on a footing of equality with her domestics, amused herself as they did, and even in her simplicity took pleasure in dressing dolls and other childish pastime. All this afforded infinite satisfaction to the jealous husband. It seemed to him that he had chosen the best way of life imaginable, and that it was not within the compass of human art or malice to trouble his repose. Accordingly, his whole care was devoted to anticipating his wife's wishes by all sorts of presents, and encouraging her to ask for whatever came into her head, for in everything it should be his pleasure to gratify her. On the day she went to Mass, which, as we have said, was before daylight, her parents attended at church, and talked with her daughter in the presence of her husband, who made them such liberal gifts 
as mitigated the keenness of their compassion for the secluded life led by their daughter. Carrizales used to get up in the morning and watch for the arrival of the purveyor, who was always made aware of what was wanted for the day by means of a note placed overnight in the turning box. After the purveyor had come and gone, Carrizales used to go abroad, generally on foot, locking both entrance doors behind him, that next the street and that which opened on the quadrangle, and leaving the negro shut up between them. Having dispatched his business, which was not much, he speedily returned, shut himself up in his house, and occupied himself in making much of his wife and her handmaids, who all liked him for his placid and agreeable humor, and above all for his great liberality towards them. In this way, they passed a year of novitiate, and made profession of that manner of life, resolved every one of them to continue in it to the end of their days. And so it would have been, if the crafty perturber of the human race had not brought their chaste purposes to naught, as you shall presently hear. Now, I ask the most long-headed and wary of my readers, what more could old Felipe have done in the way of taking precautions for his security, since he would not even allow that there should be any male animal within his dwelling? No tomcat ever persecuted its rats, nor was the barking of a dog ever heard within its walls. All creatures belonging to it were of the feminine gender. He took thought by day, and by night he did not sleep. He was himself the patrol and sentinel of his house, and the argus of what he held dear. Never did a man set foot within the quadrangle. He transacted his business with his friends in the street. The pictures that adorned his rooms were all female figures, flowers, or landscapes. His old dwelling breathed an odor of propriety, seclusion, and circumspection. The very tales which the maidservants told by the fireside in the long winter nights, being told in his presence, were perfectly free from the least tinge of wantonness. Her aged spouse's silver hairs seemed in Leonora's eyes locks of pure gold, for the first love known by maidens imprints itself on their hearts like a seal on melted wax. His inordinate watchfulness seemed to her no more than the due caution of an experienced and judicious man. She was fully persuaded that the life she led was the same as that led by all married women. Her thoughts never wandered beyond the walls of her dwelling, nor had she a wish that was not the same as her husband's. It was only on the day she went to Mass that she set eyes on the streets, and that was so early in the morning that except on the way home she had not light to look about her. Never was there seen a convent more closely barred and bolted. Never were nuns kept more recluse or golden apples better guarded. And yet for all his precautions, poor Felipe could not help falling into the pit he dreaded, or at least believing that he had so fallen. There is in Seville an idle pleasure-seeking class of people who are commonly called men of town, a sauntering, sprucely dressed, mellifluous race, always finding means to make themselves welcome at rich men's feast. Of these people, their manners and customs, and the laws they observe among themselves, I should have much to say, but abstain from it for good reasons. One of these gallants, a bachelor, or a verote, as such persons are called in their jargon, the newly married being styled matones, took notice of the house of Carrizales, and seeing it always shut close, 
he was curious to know who lived there. He set about this inquiry with such ardor and ingenuity that he failed not to obtain all the information he desired. He learned the character and habits of the old man, the beauty of Leonora, and the singular method adopted by her husband in order to keep her safe. All this inflamed him with desire to see if it would not be possible by force or stratagem to effect the reduction of so well-guarded a fortress. He imparted his thoughts to three of his friends, and they all agreed that he should go to work, for in such an enterprise no one locks counselors to aid and abet him. At first they were at a loss how to set about so difficult an exploit, but after many consultations they agreed upon the following plan. Loyaisa, so the Verrote was named, disappeared from among his friends, giving out that he was leaving Seville for some time. Then drawing on a pair of linen drawers and a clean shirt, he put over them a suit of clothes so torn and patched that the poorest beggar in the city would have disdained to wear such rags. He shaved off the little beard he had, covered one of his eyes with a plaster, tied up one of his legs, and hobbling along on two crutches, appeared so completely metamorphosed into a lame beggar that no real cripple could have looked less of a counterfeit than he. In this guise, he posted himself closely at the hour of evening prayer before the door of Carrizales house, which was fast shut, and Luis, the negro, locked up between the two doors. Having taken up his position there, Loyaisa produced a greasy guitar, wanting some of its strings, and as he was something of a musician, he began to play a few lovely airs, and to sing Moorish ballads in a feigned voice, with so much expression that all who were passing through the streets stopped to listen. The boys all made a ring round him when he sang, and Luis the Negro, enchanted by the Verrote's music, would have given one of his hands to be able to open the door and listen to him more at ease. Such is the fondness for music inherent in the Negro race. When Loaysa wanted to get rid of his audience, he had only to cease singing, put up his guitar, and hobble away on his crutches. Loaysa four or five times repeated this serenade to the Negro, for whose sake alone he played and sang, thinking that the way to succeed in his sap and siege was to begin by making sure of old Luis. Nor was his expectation disappointed. One night, when he had taken his place as usual before the door, and had begun to time his guitar, perceiving that the negro was already on the alert, he put his lips to the keyhole and whispered, Can you give me a drink of water, Luis? I am dying with thirst and can't sing. No, said the negro, for I have not the key of this door, and there is no hole through which I can give you drink. Who keeps the key, then? My master, who is the most jealous man in the world, and if he knew that I was now talking here with anyone, it were pity of my life. But who are you who ask me for water? I am a poor cripple, who keep my bread by asking alms of all the good people in God's name, besides which I teach the guitar to some Moriscoes and other poor people. Among my pupils I have three Negroes, slaves to three aldermen, who I have taught so well that they are fit to sing and play at dance or in any tavern, and they have paid me for it very well indeed. A deal better would I pay you to have the opportunity of taking lessons, but it is not possible, for when my master goes out in the morning he locks the door behind him, and he does the same when he comes in, leaving me shut up between two doors. 
I vow to God, Louise, if you would only contrive to let me in a few nights to give you lessons, in less than a fortnight I would make you such a dabster at the guitar that you need not be ashamed to play at any street corner, for I would have you to know that I have an extraordinary knack in teaching. Moreover, I have heard tell you have a very promising capacity, and from what I can judge from the tone of your voice, you must sing very well. I don't sing badly, but what good is it that since I don't know any tunes, except the Star of Venus, or In the Green Meadow, or the tune that is now so much in vogue, clinging to her grated window with a trembling hand. All these are moonshine to what I could teach you, for I know all the ballads of the more Arbindaris, with those of his lady Zarifa, and all those compromising the history of the grand Sophie Tomonabello, and the divine Sarabans, which enchant the souls of the Portuguese themselves, among whom they are most in vogue. And all these I teach by such methods, and with such facility, that almost before you have swallowed three or four bushels of salt, you will find yourself an out-and-out -out performer in every kind of guitar music. What's the good of all that? Here the negro sighed heavily. Since I can't get you into the house. There's a remedy for all things. Contrive to take the keys from your master, and I will give you a piece of wax, with which you may take an impression of the wards, for I have taken such a liking to you. I will get a locksmith, a friend of mine, to make new keys, and then I can come in at night and teach you to play better than Prester John in the Indies. It is a thousand pities that a voice like yours should be lost for want of the accompaniment of a guitar, for I would have you know, Brother Luis, that the finest voice in the world loses its perfection when it is not accompanied by some instrument, be it guitar or harpsichord, organ or harp, but the instrument that will suit your voice best is the guitar, because it is the handiest and the least costly of all. All that is very good, but the thing can't be done, for I never get hold of the keys, nor does my master ever let them out of his keeping. Day and night they sleep under his pillow. Well, then, there's another thing you may do, if so be you have made up a mind to be a first-rate musician. If you haven't, I need not bother myself with advising you. Have a mind, do you say? Aye, and to that degree there is nothing I wouldn't do, if it were possible, anyhow, for sake of being able to play music. Well, if that's the case, you only have to scrape away a little mortar from the gatepost near the hinge, and I will give you, through that opening, a pair of pincers and a hammer, with which you may by night draw out the nails of the staple, and we can easily put that to rights again, so that no one will ever suspect that the lock was opened. Once shut up with you in your loft, or wherever you sleep, I will go to work in such a style that you will turn out even better than I said, to my own personal advantage, and to the increase of your accomplishments. You need not give yourself any concern about what we shall have to eat. I will bring enough to last us both for more than a week, for I have pupils who will not let me be pinched. As for that matter, we are all right, for with what my master allows me, and the leavings brought me by the slave girls, we should have enough for two more besides ourselves. Only bring the hammer and pincers, and I will make an opening close to the hinge through which you may pass them in, and I will stop it up again with mud. I will take the fastenings out of the lock, and even should it be necessary to give some loud knocks, my master sleeps so far from this gate that it must be either a miracle or an extraordinary ill luck if he hears them. Well, then, 
with the blessing of god friend louise in two days from this time you shall have everything necessary for the execution of your laudable purpose meanwhile take care not to eat such things as are apt to make phlegm for they do the voice no good but a deal of harm nothing makes me so hoarse so much as wine but i would not give it up for all the voices above ground i don't think i would have you do so god forbid drink louise my boy drink and much good may it do you for wine drunken measure never did any one harm i always drink in measure i have a jug here that holds exactly three pints and a half the girls fill this for me unknown to my master and the purveyor brings me on the sly a bottle holding a good gallon which makes up for the deficiency of the jug that's the way to live my boy for a dry throat can neither grunt nor sing well go your ways now and god be with you but don't forget to come and sing here every night until such a time as you bring the tools for getting you within doors my fingers itch to be at the guitar i do but before you go away now sing me something that i may go to sleep pleasantly and for the matter of payment be it known to the senor pobre that i be more liberal than many a rich man oh and i ain't uneasy on that score if you think i teach you well i will leave it to yourself to pay me accordingly and now i'll just sing you one song but when i am inside you will see wonders here ended this long dialogue and loisa sang a sprightly ditty with such good effect that the negro was in ecstasies and felt as if the time for opening the door would never arrive having finished his song Loisa took his departure and set off at a rounder pace than might have been expected of a man on crutches to report to his friends what a good beginning he had made. He told them what he had concerted with the negro, and the following day they procured tools of the right sort, fit to break any fastening as if it was made of straw. The verrote failed not to serenade the negro, nor the latter to scrape at the gatepost till he had made a sufficiently wide hole, which he plastered up so well that no one could perceive it unless he searched for it on purpose. On the second night, Loisa passed in the tools. Luis went to work with them, whipped off the staple in a trice, opened the door, and let in his Orpheus. Great was his surprise to see him on his two crutches, with such a distorted leg, and in such a tattered plight. Loisa did not wear the patch over his eye, for it was not necessary, and as soon as he entered, he embraced his pupil, kissed him on the cheek and immediately put into his hand a big jar of wine a box of preserves and other sweet things with which his wallet was well stored then throwing aside his crutches he began to cut capers as if nothing ailed him to the still greater amazement of the negro you must know brother louise said loisa that my lameness does not come of natural infirmity but from my own ingenious contrivance whereby i get my bread asking alms for the love of god in this way, and with the help of my music, I lead the merriest life in the world, where others, with less cleverness and good management, would be starved to death. Of this you will be convinced in the course of our friendship. We shall see, said the negro, but now let us put this staple back in its place, so that it may not appear that it has been moved. Very good, said Loisa, and taking out some nails from his wallet, he soon made the lock seem as secure as ever to the great satisfaction of the negro, who, taking him at once to his loft, made him as comfortable there as he could. Luis lighted a lamp. Loisa took up his guitar and began to strike the chords softly and sweetly, 
so that the poor negro was transported with delight. After he had played a while, he drew forth a fresh supply of good things for collation, which they partook of together, and the pupil applied himself so earnestly to the bottle that it took away his senses still more than the music had done. Supper over, Loisa proposed that Louis should take his first lesson at once, and though the poor negro was too much fuddled to distinguish one string from another, Loisa made him believe that he had already learnt at least two notes. So persuaded was the poor fellow of this, that he did nothing all night but jangle and strum away. They had but a short sleep that night. In the morning, just on the strike of six, Carrizales came down, opened both entrance doors, and stood waiting for the purveyor, who came soon afterwards, and, after depositing the day's supplies in the turning-box, called the negro down to receive his ration and oats for the mule. After the purveyor was gone, old Carrizales went out, locking both doors after him without having seen what had been done to the lock of one of them, whereat both master and pupil rejoiced not a little. No sooner was the master of the house gone than the negro laid hold on the guitar and began to scrape it in such a manner that all the servant-maids came to the second door and asked him through the turning-box, "'What is this, Louise? How long have you had a guitar? Who gave it to you?' "'Who gave it to me? The best musician in the world!' and one who is to teach me in six days more than six thousand tunes. "'Where is he, this musician?' said the duenna. "'He is not far off,' replied the negro, "'and if it were not for fear of my master, "'perhaps I would tell you where at once, "'and I warrant you would be glad to see him.' "'But where can he be for us to see him?' returned the duenna, "'since no one but our master ever enters the house. "'I will not tell you any more about the matter "'till you have heard what I can do.' and how much he has taught me in this short time. By my troth, unless he is a demon who has taught you, I don't know how you could have become a musician all at once. Stop a bit and you shall hear him, and mayhap you will see him too some day. That can't be, said another of the women, for there are no windows on the street through which we could hear or see anybody. Never mind, said the negro, there's a remedy for everything but death, if you only could or would keep silence keep silence ay that we will brother Luis, as if we were born dumb i give you my word friend i am dying to hear a good voice for ever since we have been shut up here we have not even heard the birds sing loyaisa listened with great inward glee to this conversation which showed how readily the women were taking the very bent he would have given them the negro was afraid lest his master should return and catch him talking with them but they would not go away until he had promised that when they least expected it, he would call them to hear a capital voice. He then retreated to his loft, where he would gladly have resumed his lessons, but durst not do so by day for fear of detection. His master returned soon after and went into the house, locking both doors behind him as usual. When Luis went that day to the turning-box for his victuals, he told the negresses who brought them over to let her fellow-servants know that when their master was asleep that night, they should all then come down to the turning-box, when he would be sure to give them the treat he had promised. He was enabled to say so much, having previously entreated his music-master to condescend to sing and play that night before the inner door for the amusement of the women. The maestro suffered himself to be pressed very hard to do the thing he most desired, but after much seeming reluctance, he at last yielded to the solicitations of his esteemed pupil and said he would be happy to oblige. 
the negro embraced him cordially, in testimony of his grateful sense of the promised favor, and treated him that day to as good cheer as he could possibly have done at home, or perhaps better. Towards midnight Luis knew, by the signals cautiously given at the turning box, that the women were all there, whereupon he and Louisa went down from the loft with a guitar, complete in all its strings and well-tuned. The maestro asked how many were there to hear him, and was told that all the women in the house were there, except her lady, who was in bed with her husband. This was not what Louisa wished for. Nevertheless, by way of making a beginning and obliging his pupil, he touched the guitar softly, and drew from it such tones as ravished the ears of his audience. But who could describe the delight of the women when he sang Pesame Deo, and followed it up with the magic strains of the saraband then new in Spain? There was not one of them that did not keep time to the music as if she were dancing like mad, but all noiselessly, with extreme caution, keeping scouts on the watch to warn them if the old man awoke. Noisa finally played them several segadillas, and so put the climax to his success that they all eagerly begged the negro to tell them who was this marvelous musician. Luis replied that he was a poor beggar, but the most gallant and genteel man in all the back slums of Seville, they conjured the negro to contrive some means that they might see him, and not to let him quit the house for a fortnight, for they would take care to, to supply him with the best of good cheer and plenty of it. They were curious to know how Luis had managed to get him into the house, but to this the negro made no reply. For the rest he told them that if they wanted to see the maestro, they might bore a small hole in the turning box, and after stop it up with wax, and that as far as keeping him in the house, he would do his best. Loasa then addressed them, and offered them his services in such obliging and polite terms that they were sure such fine language never came out of the head of a poor beggar. They entreated he would come the next night, and they would prevail on their lady to come down and hear him, in spite of the light sleep of her lord and master the result not so much of his age as of his extreme jealousy. Loisa replied that if they wished to hear him without fear of being surprised by the old man, he would give them a powder to put in his wine, which would make him sleep more soundly. Good heaven, cried one of the damsels. If that were true, what a blessing would have come home to us without our knowing or deserving it. It would not be a sleeping powder for him so much as it would be a powder of life for us and for my poor dear lady, Leonora, his wife, to whom he sticks as close as her shadow, never losing sight of her for a moment. Ah, Signor of my soul, bring that powder, and may God reward you with all the good you can desire. Go, don't lose a moment. Bring it, Signor Mio. I would take it upon me to put it in his wine and be his cupbearer. Oh, that it might please God that the old man should sleep three days and nights. Three glorious days and nights that would be for us. Well, I'll bring it then, said Loisa. It is of such a nature that it does no harm to the person who takes it, the only effect of it being to cause a more profound sleep. They all entreated him to bring it without delay, and then they took their leave of him, after agreeing that on the following night they would make a hole in the turning box with a gimlet and that they would try and persuade their mistress to come down. By this time it was nearly daylight, yet the negro wished to take a lesson. 
Loaysa complied with his desire, and assured him that among all the pupils he had ever taught, he had not known one with a finer ear, and yet the poor negro could never, to the end of his days, have learned the gamut. Loaysa's friends took care to come at night to Carrizales' door, to see if their friend had any instructions to give them, or wanted anything. On the second night, when they had made him aware of their presence by a preconcerted signal, he gave them, through the keyhole, a brief account of the prosperous beginning he had made, and begged they would try and get him something to be given to Carrizales to make him sleep. He had heard, he said, that there were powders which produced that effect. They told him they had a friend, a physician, who would give them the best drug for that purpose if he happened to have it, and after encouraging him to persist in the enterprise, and promising to return on the following night, they left him. End of the Jealous Estre Maduran, Part 1